You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. And Alhamdulillah, this is the program for all those uh, people that are interested in uh, the world of legal, legal. And Alhamdulillah, this evening on uh, Legal Talk, uh, we have uh, one of our favorites uh, back. And his name is uh, Senior Attorney Ashraf Isub. And when Ashraf uh, comes onto the platform, I tell you, he puts a smile on my dial. And I know he does that uh, for all of you. And Alhamdulillah, the topic that we're looking for is, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a lovely topic indeed. And I, I, I'm sure I'm really going to enjoy it with you. And our senior attorney, Ashraf Isub, will be highlighting the dangers of arguing a useless case. Hmm? Talking and talking and talking. Perhaps someone likes to do the Stalingrad mode. But uh, yeah, and they get bills and where they get the money from, but they can still have the money. When you got the money, you can let your, yeah, you can go and fight a useless case. And uh, Ashraf Isup, Assalamu Alaikum, Senior Ash- uh, uh, Attorney Ashraf Isup, Assalamu Alaikum, Wa Rahmatullahi Wa Barakatuh. And tell me, my beloved brother, how are you doing this fine, beautiful Friday evening? Wa Alaikum, Assalamu Wa Rahmatullahi Wa Barakatuh. And thank you once again for taking the trouble to host me. Alhamdulillah, all is well on this fine, beautiful evening, which, as we know, is a public holiday, 16th of June. And let's hope that people had a wonderful Juma as well. You know, Ashraf, you always have a knack of bringing out something from me. And I love you for that because uh, you're a brother that stimulates me. And, uh, you know, both uh, you and I, hopefully, I think is you talk about the 16th of June and it is a very momentous occasion because it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, these uh, youth that arose to fight against the apartheid regime, number one. Number two, uh, they didn't like the language of the uh, oppressor and the person that was doing the oppression. They hated Afrikaans. They didn't want uh, Afrikaans. But, Ashraf, they gave their lives, and uh, that life uh, that they gave and uh, subsequently led uh, to uh, the liberation of the country, the dissolvement of uh, apartheid and so forth. You know, uh, Islam says, fight oppression, so there is no more oppression on or in the land. You know, uh, looking at uh, what happened in 76, then in 94, and then uh, we are now 2023. Uh, 20 or 30 years into the so-called democratic government. Do you think those uh, youth of 76, did they lose their lives in vain, Ashraf? How would you read that? So I think, uh, Shafat, you know, one has to have recourse uh, to our very strange history and circumstances in this country. South Africa has been, I think, from very early on in a very unique history. First, they were the Khoi and the San people that lived in the Western Cape. Then came the Dutch East India Company and they established a station there. Then came the British East India Company and they unseated the Dutch East India Company and they came with their own little tricks there. And then came the the push from the uh, from the uh, Afrikaners to push away far away from the English as possible. I was reading with interest that there were two possible reasons for that. Uh, number one, that the Afrikaners that came and that belonged to the NGK Netherlands Gereformeerde Kerk. 
that they were actually uh, Protestants and, and, and Calvinists and not Catholics. So they actually pushed away from the strict teachings of the Catholic Church. And then we know that they moved uh, into the uh, interior and they were pursued by uh, the British until the discovery of gold and diamonds, which, which became a, a game changer, right? Then we know of the Anglo-Poor Wars and then obviously the State of the Union from 1910 uh, to, nine, to Republic in 1961. Then in 1961, apartheid became entrenched because it was no longer the Union government, but it was the, uh, the government of the Republic. And in its books, the statutes were created that would bring apartheid into formal existence, like legally. And that's very important because we know that there's discrimination apartheid in most parts of the world. But here it was on the statute books that you are discriminated against uh, on this or that basis. And that doesn't mean any of this thing has disappeared. So the question that June 16th, right, it was a festering sore. Uh, part of the protest, as you pointed out, was that uh, the students said, maths is hard enough. Now you're asking us to do maths in Afrikaans. We reject it. And it was also reckoned to be the language of the oppressor. But you would recall some other time that we discussed that the first formal text in Afrikaans was the Quran uh, that was mm -hmm. written in the Cape. And then obviously look at the Afrikaans language itself. It had taken a lot from the Arabic, like Qurant, uh, which is newspaper, came from Quran. Ard, uh, came, Ard uh. came from Ard, yeah. So, so now we have this, this pushback by the youngsters. But I think a little known fact, uh, Shafat, was that one of the first things they closed down and they identified as the oppression of their uh, parents was the Shibins. I mean, that had a tremendous effect on, on, on the fact that up to then, township life, then and now, was, in a, was terrible. But they identified that one of the, uh, you know, w one of the things that actually aided and uh, assisted in the oppression was alcohol. And as long as the people uh, remained in a state of intoxication, they were not able to lift their eyes and recognize what was uh, going on around them. So that was quite interesting to see um, that their pushback was also against those elements in the society that tended to hinder the thinking process. And so we know of Hector Peterson and, and all the other you know, young people that had lost their lives in, uh, in the uprising. And certainly, I think on some accounts, the uprising was completely unplanned in the sense that it was not, uh, it was not planned by the ANC itself, which was in exile at the time. It was a decision taken by the youth, uh, much the same as you would see in certain areas where they refer to the Arab Spring and, you know, 
revolution of the day. Uh, I mean, you can you can uh, you can have historical recourse to the Russian Revolution, the French Revolution before then, and so in in a way you can see that the seeds of dissent and resistance to the state was was certainly blossoming or had exploded on the 16th of June 1976. Now, the, the elements that made that up were quite, like I said to you, quite sporadic. Uh, maybe there was a level of um, planning by the uh, student or bodies and organizations, but certainly gave people a lot of hope and courage that now, irrespective of the inequality of arms and the uh, brute force of the apartheid state, that they wanted to now stand up and have their say, so to speak. The question then is how much of the early uh, goals and objectives ultimately uh, ended up in the in the final state, which is the uh, constitutional democracy that we have today. Um, I don't know if there's too many studies done about that, but you could certainly see the way Things are crumbling around us, especially in the ruling party, you know, firing uh, ministers and then they dying. Well, they didn't fire the minister, but um, that minister. And then then we had uh, other minister, uh, other members of the ruling party that broke away as soon as uh, I mean, Cope, you know, you recall Cope's um, formation was after Mandela. Yes, and uh, in Becky, and then, you know, I mean, the, you can see the fracturing of of the ruling party. So it's all interesting to see how these things are playing out. Unfortunately, we might have had the now opportunity to cast our vote, but the effective control of the economy uh, hasn't changed, and there's still massive poverty and unforgiving suffering in this country for the majority of the people. Um, was it in vain? I don't think so. I think they took uh, to the streets in the hope and belief that they will bring change. They were tired, there was nothing else to lose. And like I said, they took on the mighty apartheid machine, which basically then, you know, continue grinding on until um, the uh, settlement negotiations in the middle to late 80s culminating in the uh, you know, first democratic election in 1994. But I guess for those people that died for whatever they believed in, they will have uh, their reward for that. And for those people that supported them, I mean, there's a lot of, there were a lot of uh, doctors, professional people, especially if you, if you have to narrow it down in the Indian community, you know, the Dadus, um, the Aswats, Aswats uh, uh, you know, uh, the young man, I mean, Imam Harun. There were, there, there were so many, so many outstanding figures uh, that, that you can, uh, Saluji, you know, you, you can look at all of this uh, and look back at, at what they, they, I think what I'm saying is they paid a price for their beliefs. And, you know, you can't argue with that. You can be an armchair critic, but you can't argue that the man that pays the ultimate price for whatever he believes in is definitely 
you know somebody that you could you could admire from that point of view instead of just uh you know paying lip service shepard that that's my assessment i don't know if it's accurate but certainly see that they stood up for what they believed was right uh and that's a big big call for people today to stand up for 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 the belief of what is right You know, Ashraf, as you uh, spoke eloquently about the youth of uh, yesteryear, uh, you know, they believed in uh, what uh, they fought for and, you know, perhaps they had a vision and uh, they identified the problem. And uh, today, would you say, you know, uh, there's a perception that the youth of today in this country, uh, it's a very young population, uh, they say uh, 60%, you know, we're talking about above 18, 30 and uh, so forth, being the youth uh, or the young people of this country. uh but uh, most of them have this uh, uh you know this notion of entitlement that you know the government must uh, provide for them i mean you look at the education or nasfas i mean taking those grants and getting all that but uh, the dropout uh, rate at the uh, you know uh, at 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 uh, academic level or the university is that uh, most of them don't get past the first year but they fail and fail they're allowed to fail three times but so much of money being wasted on them and perhaps uh, you know their priorities are wrong they use the money more for perhaps entertainment or buying cars and you know living it up what's your thoughts on that ashraf you know shafat it's easy to to criticize and say the youth are wasting mm. uh, resources and you know allowing to fail and have no vision for the future and i mean that's i think that's one criticism but i think if you really look at how things and events are unfolding all around the world shafat i don't think the south african youth are unique in that sense mm. you can take any country uh, if you take the uh, arab countries you see the youth wasting time racing cars on dunes you know i mean how much how, how much can you get into that the other side is the music world uh the ease on on which you can access any information on your phone on your tablet uh and and the fact that the youth are being bombarded with all kinds of issues whether it's lbgt or whether it's whatever youth all over the world are exposed to the same set of norms and we are no different um when it comes to entitlement well both england had a dole system for a very long time um most arab countries pay their youth and their stipends and you know they do a lot for their youth whether the youth produce or not is a different thing uh india and china especially china i was looking at something where they actually now gearing up for the new kind of student you know they put a headset on you and they know when you're nodding off and you're not concentrating mm. that is the kind of level of education that they now imparting but i think those countries already realize that they have to they have to train their youth to be industrialists and and take it on that level they understand the 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 new genera- the new world that is coming and and they doing whatever is necessary um yeah i can understand that South Africa is trying to level the playing fields by saying that education should be free and equal and 
it's difficult to just say that these people are uh, are drinking it up and buying cars, Shafat. You must understand that the core values, the society hasn't changed at its core. They still come from impoverished backgrounds. I mean, township life is horrible. And, you know, like any young person, they also have aspirations. Whether the aspirations are theirs or it's created as a image around which they should be living or emulating the uh, U.S. pop stars or whatever, it's all part of the system. You know, they, 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 they're not living in a lager or in a bubble. They are part and parcel of, of the humankind, and they're also susceptible to whatever norms and adverts and uh, values are pushed their way. You can see it. So are we, are we able to just say, look, you know, it's only this country's youth that are wasteful in their resources and not doing the best? I don't think so. I think it's a worldwide phenomenon, and that should make us worry. Why is it that so many young people are affected by the same mourn, uh, norms and, and value systems? And why is it that, um, especially the uh, music and film in the industry, Shabbat, push such a strong line for whatever they need um, uh, people to believe in. Uh, just two very quick examples. It, you know, McDonald's was something you only saw in the movies. And McDonald's is here now, and people love it. You know, they, they, the queues are there. Um, KFC is another example. Uh, you, can, you can take any, any American franchise, Pizza Hut, uh, Star, um, uh, what's Starbucks. The, Starbucks, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's all emulating this. It's, it's, you're seeing it in the movie, now you want to taste it. So I think the marketers are, are really having a field day. And, of course, a lot of it goes to the bottom line of the companies. Um, it's not one of ethics or consideration of damage or health. It's about getting the bottom line right. How, how much of turnover can the company secure? So I, I, I hope that gives an indication that we're not unique, Shabbat, and uh, we've got to take into account that they also are susceptible to this great machine called uh, advertisements. You know, um, Ashraf, you know, I bless you for that because it really made me see uh, the, the, the full uh, spectrum because when I was looking at it, I, I was only seeing that white light. I didn't see the red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, and violet. You made me see the whole thing. And Allah, Allah, Allah bless you for that. And as you said, this phenomena of uh, you know, youth being targeted is not only a South African phenomena, it's a worldwide ph uh, phenomena. And then you bring in uh, the uh, fast food franchises. And when you talk about the McDonald's, the KFCs, the Starbucks, and the Steers, and uh, name them all, you find them in the holy lands. And those kids in the holy lands, they're chowing them by the tons, and you can see the sizes they are in. They jumbo, jumbo, everything must be jumbo size, jumbo uh, carbonated drinks, jumbo burgers, jumbo this, jumbo that. Ice cream too, you know, 10 people can eat, but one person will eat 10 ice cream. And as you said, you know, there's uh, this, uh, I mean, uh, Malcolm or, or Malik al-Shabaz said, the media is so powerful, it can have, uh, it can uh, brainwash millions and millions of uh, people. It can have you loving the oppressor and hating those that are oppressed. That's how powerful the media is. And then, uh, you know, when you look at these governments that are put in place, uh, obviously they're doing the bidding 
of a one world disorder, Ashraf? Yeah, well, look, um, the question is, uh, you know, do, do governments govern or do the people govern? So, so the way that our democracies work around the world is once in every couple of years, you have the right to vote in our country, not for a sp specific individual, which has now recently been changed because uh, uh, individual candidates can now stand independent of a political party. But you always voted for the political party. And here the sentiment has always been that the ruling party was the one that liberated South Africa. And people still have that memory, you see. And um, and they act in, a, in terms of that memory. Um, it, uh, you know, that is how democracies work. In the US, you only have two parties, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans. Now, no matter what you do, in the UK, you have a similar situation, the Conservatives and the Labour Party. So you have to belong to a party and push the party in line. You can't stand as an independent. Bernie Sanders saw that in the uh, US, no matter how, let's say, correct or ethical his view was, uh, he couldn't sustain himself as an independent candidate. So you basically toe the line of the party and the party expects you to respect the party's decision and not to step out of it. That is how these, um, these things work. Unfortunately, it doesn't guarantee any degree of uh, advancement for the people um, or as we would like to see advancement. I mean, you know, there are undoubtedly certain changes that you can't just wish away in the country. Um, you know, housing. They, 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 the government has put a huge effort into housing. Yes, the RDP, some of them failed, some of them um, succeeded, some were poor, and then, of, of course, uh, corruption. But we're not alone in corruption in the world, Chapa. I mean, in the French, there's not a arms deal that can go through without bribery and corruption. This is how the companies operate. So it's all over the world, Shafat, not just here. The difficulty that we have mm. is that we have not been able to posit an alternative effectively. There's no effective alternative. Right now we're stuck. We're stuck with between and betwixt, um, you know, we know that there is um, the system that we live in and there is a system that was implemented 1,444 years ago. We're unable to go back and bridge that gap. And the last uh, known organizer of uh, this, the, the, the Ummah was uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid uh, from Turkey. And I think it's one more year, 1924, next year, 2024. It'll be 100 years since the, um, you know, since the demise of the Khalifat. So, you know, the, so we, we basically, we look at democracy as the tool of empowerment and um, the way the state is organized and, and the way we live in the organized state. So you can see that, we, yeah, we have lots of uh, challenges because 
we have this whole belief that we need to be clear and correct and concise, but it looks like we we limit our discussion to in our personal lives, birth, marriages, mm. and deaths, and then uh, everything else uh, falls outside it. So we're extremely scrupulous when it comes to birth, marriages, and death, but it's it's not the whole picture. But that's how it is. Yeah, you make a lot of sense, and you know, as you said, uh, even the reporting is uh, selective, and if it suits the powers uh, that are. Uh, that be, uh, they will only, uh, you know, pick certain stories and highlight them. And if you if you, if you look at, uh, you know, the American scenario, it is uh, APAC, the, uh, you know, American-Israeli Press Affairs uh, Committee that decides uh, who the next leadership will be, who the next government will be. And they are heavily backed by the Christian uh, uh, Zionist, uh, you know, uh, belt, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Christian Baptist Zionist churches, we call them, because they are heavily back the Zionist state of Israel and so forth. So, uh, you know, when we look at a picture, uh, we should look at the whole. And, uh, you know, Jazakallah Khair for bringing up such a, uh, you know, such a uh, verbal picture of what's really going on uh, in the world and not only picking on our youth and telling them that they are doing, because after all, where does the uh, alcohol come from? Where does the fashion labels come from? Where does the movie house, uh, houses, you know, where does all this thing come up? Pornography and all these things. Where are they made? Where are they manufactured? And where are they, uh, you know, in I mean, look at all the Arab countries that are, uh, you know, that, are, uh, that the filth has captured. And they say one of the, uh, you know, the biggest porn site goes in uh, the, 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 the so-called Arab countries and so forth. And, you know, look at the divorce rate is so high in that. And, you know, now they, uh, or the, whatever the West spewed out, all the filth, is all landing in uh, the the Arabian Peninsula. A quick, uh, you know, a point from the uh, or thought from you, uh, Ashraf, and we'll move on uh, with our topics, inshallah. Well, Ashraf, you know, when you say Arab countries, you know, these countries were, were <laughs> the borders were drunk were drawn by a drunk Churchill mm. in in the in the Home Office in England by a stroke of a pen. I, I mean, we have to wake up to the fact that there was no separate Iraq and Kuwait. They were one. Uh, there was no separate Jordan and Saudi Arabia. This was all the creation of uh, the British. And we still give due respect to each of these creations. And like I say, we've lost sight of what the original teaching was. So we find ourselves as nations, nationalists, competing with each other, man. You know, uh, that this is Syria and this is Jordan and this is the Ba'ath Party ruling in Syria and this is, I mean, really, a national government with a national debt, a national army and a national flag tells you the whole story, it's nationalism. When we bought into it, hook, line and sinker, in certain areas they say, oh well, democracy is your only answer. But if they don't like the democratically elected government, like Algeria and Tunisia, well, they'll just get rid of them. Again, you see, it's heads you lose, tails you lose, Shafat. So we have to go back. Mm. 
Yeah, as you say, heads are win, tails you lose, and uh, we have to go back. And you make a point. We have to go back to Medina, the Medina Charter. Medina, Medina, Medina to Nabi. Now, Ashraf, you've been so busy this week. Hey, I watched you on so many radios and uh, television stations talking to the media and talking about those that have dual passports. They could be in big trouble. Talk to us, Ashraf, fill us in uh, this evening. Yeah, so that is very topical now, um, Shafat, and it's very interesting. So let's give some background, right? In terms of the um, in terms of the Citizenship Act, right? There's a provision there, Section Six One A, that said and held the following: If you acquired citizenship voluntarily of another country while being a South African citizen, then you automatically lost your citizenship. It's automatic, right? Unless you applied to the Minister of Home Affairs first to retain South African citizenship. And you actually got a letter that you can retain and take up citizenship of another state. So this was in the statute books, as we know, since 1995. Now, Mr. Plikes was sitting in London, a South African citizen, settled there, he became a naturalized British subject. And in terms of the Passports Controls Act, if you enter South Africa and you're a dual citizen, you must do so on your SA passport and you must exit on your SA passport. But there, Mr. Plikes went to apply for his South African passport in our embassy in London. They said, oh, sorry, Mr. Plikes, got a slight problem here. Yeah? You ceased to be a citizen in 2015. He says, but how? He says, well, you became a citizen of the UK, so you therefore automatically lost South African citizenship unless you can prove that you actually applied to the minister to retain and you got a retention letter. Obviously, Mr. Plikes said, look, I, that didn't happen. So the DA, took this matter to court, first to the High Court and the Department of Home Affairs won. On appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, with a unanimous judgment of five judges, struck down this provision, Section 61A. It says, no, no, no. You can't automatically lose your citizenship. This is not correct. This is irrational. And it flies in the face of South African citizenship or the constitution, not citizenship, the constitution. The constitution safeguards citizenship because section 20 says no one may be deprived of his citizenship. The judges then said, look, is section 61A of the Citizenship Act irrational? And the judges all found, yes, it was because it didn't, it didn't serve any rational purpose. And the Department of Home Affairs couldn't place before the judges any rational purpose for such a provision to exist. Because they were arguing, no, we need to know who is a citizen and who is not. And you do have a defense mechanism you can apply to the minister. And the judge said, no, no, no. Why should it be that I automatically lose my citizenship? Or, and what difference does it make when I can apply to the minister and he will confirm that I can take up citizenship 
So, so an administrative thing or an administrative fact is the only division between you holding on to your citizenship and losing it. So it was interesting that they struck down uh, the section of the Citizenship Act in these circumstances. The second interesting thing, Shafat, is they didn't just say, okay, it's effective from the 13th of June, 2023. They said, no, no, no. We think that people that were affected by this decision at its inception in 1995 are also now deemed to be citizens and not to have lost their citizenship. So you can see it has very, very far-reaching consequences, both in terms of time and in terms of effect. Now, you and I both know that a lot of people have acquired foreign citizenship either by investment, what they call citizenship by investment, let's say Turkey, or the golden visa schemes in Europe, or the Caribbean island second citizenship. So the, the judges said, no, you don't have to go back. You don't have to go back and reinstate. It is deemed that you never lost your citizenship. So I thought that was a very interesting protection of the rights of citizens in the constitution. And the judges were very detailed and, and clear that you cannot be deprived arbitrarily of your citizenship in the sense that you just lost it automatically. Deprivation is possible under Section 8, but that the minister can deal with the person who intends to deprive and say to him, listen, you are now you have now committed a crime in a foreign country and this and that, and for these reasons, I'm depriving you of your citizenship. Uh, a good example would be, but he hasn't done so yet, is the Guptas. So they are still deemed to be South African citizens because there hasn't been any action taken against them that says, look, we're stripping you of your citizenship because of A, B, and C. There was an attempt, you know, almost through the back door, Shafat, um, when the Guptas applied for the renewal of their passports and the minister mm -hmm. says, oh, no, no. Uh, in terms of uh, the passports regulation, if you are a fugitive from justice and you're facing charges here, um, as we know, you know, there's state capture, except that we know that the New Lane or Nulani prosecution fell flat on its face in Bloemfontein. So there's no real basis to charge the Guptas there. Um, if the Guptas is a good example of the fact that they have not been stripped of their citizenship, but an aspect of citizenship, which is a passport, which is also constitutionally guaranteed, was deprived to them. So I hope you're getting the feel of what I'm saying. No, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I, I can I can tell you that uh, yeah, so many of our peoples do have uh, you know dual uh, citizenship, uh, UK and, and then uh, you know as you said Turkey. Many of them are in Turkey, and uh, maybe uh, you're, you're looking at the Arab or the uh, Emiratis. Uh, do uh, uh, our people uh, do they have dual citizenships uh, there too, uh, Ashraf? So as far as I know, none of the Arab states offer citizenship mm. to any other party. So they don't have a nationalization process. Yes, they're offering you now permanent residence and temporary residence. But you know, Shavad, that's no better than 
what we saw in the COVID pandemic. If you had a right of temporary residence, for example, well, you couldn't enter South Africa because you were not a citizen. Only the citizens had the right of return and those that enjoyed permanent residence. That was the only exception. So you can see how deep this thing really goes. The second thing is the extraterritorial rights of protection by the South African states was dem- the state was demonstrated in the matter of Kaunda in the Constitutional Court many, many years ago. You'll recall that there were some mercenaries flying from here to go and overthrow, I think, some Central African country. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they stopped over in Zimbabwe and there was blood pouring out of the cowlings. And they, they searched the plane and they found all these mercenaries there. Mm-hmm. And then they were charging the third state. And they said, look, they called on the South African government, says, look, you're legally obliged to assist us here. Now, the assistance is there. It may come in the way of consular visits, but not necessarily legal assistance. So that much you're entitled to. So let's say you're in, in a disaster zone. I think we saw this recently. Where was the crisis? Uh, and South Africans had to get out. Yeah, I, I, there was Sudan, Sudan. right? Yeah. yeah. And emergency passports were issued to them and they were flown out. Or, um, so, so these are some of the rights that you enjoy as citizens. And it's a very important thing that, Shafat, that we concentrate on the South African constitution and the rights that we enjoy therein. Because the rights are quite a lot. It's all in the Bill of Rights. But you know, if you don't access your right, you cannot enjoy that right, Shafat. So I hope that has given an indication of the importance of this uh, matter of uh, the DA versus the Minister of Home Affairs. You know, very uh, uh, clear indeed, uh, Ashraf. And uh, yes, I'm sure everyone understood uh, the point uh, that you brought home. And also, you know, uh, being a South African citizen, and I can tell you when I went on a humanitarian aid uh, to Mogadishu in, when was it, 2010, and I proudly had my South African, uh, you know, uh, 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 badge, you know, on on my composite or on my... uh, on, 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 the, on the badge that was there with my photograph. And as we entered Mogadishu, uh, they looked at you as a South African and, uh, and you, you, you represented your country. But, uh, you know, you get this. But as you spoke about uh, nation states and nationalism and so forth, you know, amongst the Muslims, and we're supposed to be one big Ummah. But this nationalism thing and, uh, you know, you being a South African and your South African rights and your South African passport, um, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get into this... Uh, argument of, you know, national state, nationalism, as a Muslim, what do I say? I am Muslim first and South African second? Or how does that, how would you read into that, uh, Ashraf? No, you're a South African citizen first, Shafat. You're living right. under the, the law of this country. Okay. You're living within the boundaries of this country. I mean, you can't be living in a bubble. You can't say, I'm not a South African, but I'm living here under its laws. I mean, we have to be consistent. Mm. So we got it. You're, South, you're a South African Muslim then? Yes. Alhamdulillah. And it doesn't take anything away from you. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you'll be the first to, to cry foul if your constitutional rights are taken away. Mm. Good point. Very good point. So the Egyptian will say, I am an Egyptian Muslim then. 
Well, that's how people identify themselves. They say they, they, they call themselves by the nationality first. That's absolutely. I'm an American Muslim. I'm a British Muslim. But Alhamdulillah, we all uh, read the Kalima, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Ashraf, a brilliant uh, conversation again. And then, then your topic on the composite, the whole dunya has seen this. And you, you are, it says, uh, Senior Attorney Ashraf Isuf will be highlighting the dangers of arguing a useless case. Thus far, we haven't spoken anything that is useless, people. But Ashraf, talk to us about, you know, highlighting the dangers of arguing a useless case. Give us, it's all yours, Ashraf. Next, uh, yeah, tw uh, 20 minutes or next uh, 19 minutes, fill us in. Bismillah. So the default position, Shabbat, is that everyone is entitled to a defense. Okay. And it's important to know that a counsel or attorneys have to do their best for their clients. But there's a limitation to that. And this was starkly brought into focus in the labor court. Now, there, the judges chastise their um, legal teams. Um, and it says that chastisement was actually in two cases. And it said, look, we're pro prohibiting you from charging fees from your clients. And if you charged, you must give that thing back. So <laughs> acting judge Smang Seteni, he said, uh, he, he actually wrote two judgments and these, these were in urgent matters, right? His reasoning was, look, man, both the cases were hopeless in law and the facts. So there's two, there's two parts. He said the facts were useless and the law was useless. The first one involved UNISA, um, who had employed Dr. Masia Skokiwa as one of its vice principals for a five-year fixed term. But her contract was not renewed and she felt, look, it's unfair. She took the matter to CCMA and an award of six months salary was made uh, in her favor. Shiva, just give me one second, just one second. Okay, you carry on, Farooq, uh, as, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Isop, uh, uh, our attorney, Ashraf Isop there. You know, as uh, I've been listening to Ashraf and, uh, you know, the, uh, the valid points that he's making uh, this evening about, uh, you know, cases being fought and uh, bringing the, the issues of uh, nation states and so forth. And also, you know, talking about uh, dual passports and how, you know, the case uh, that, I mean, uh, there is hope for our judiciary uh, making an informed decision there and uh, giving us, uh, you know, the citizens uh, uh, the benefit of the doubt that if you have a dual, uh, you know, citizenship, <clears throat> that uh, you won't automatically lose your citizenship. I mean, I was thinking while Ashraf was saying that, uh, you know, these guys uh, may be at home if you are think you're making a quick buck. Yeah, I know you must do this and you must pay for this and pay for that. Go ahead, Ashraf. Go ahead. Are you back? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry, your friend, the cat. Uh, yeah, I know he loves you. Yeah, I, I love him too. I know he, you know, people, both Ashraf and I, when we're in the studio, our cats follow us. Yeah, they're simply. Uh, uh, demanding. And, 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 and they're perfect. Go ahead, Ashraf. <laughs> they're perfect. So she filed um, and, and she got six months salary, right? It was quite sizable. 1.2 million. The employer UNISA filed a review application 
in October 2022, challenging that ruling. Now, the first thing is they did so out of time, and then they took no action after that. Shraf, you got another disturbance there. Yeah, I think you can take that. You can mute yourself. You're no, taking it. No, it's okay. I'll Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Ashraf. So, and um, and then UNISA made, um, you know, the application was deemed archived. And then she, UNISA didn't make any application to resuscitate that application. And when Sokiwa went to the sheriff uh, to attach UNISA's assets, the institution sprang into action. It approached the court and claimed there was a review application pending and that Sokiwa was acting unlawfully. And there was an affidavit by Professor Peach, the head of legal services, who said there was a review application which was launched on 5th of May, 2023. Seteni said, this is the judge, when he challenged UNISA's lawyers about whether he was pending review, counsel took instruction and asked for an order striking its own application from the role with costs. I mean, that was absolutely shocking that you say to the judge there's a review and when there was none. So you can see both on fact and uh, law. That was a useless case, right? Second matter also involved the same judge. This time it was the Limpopo Department of Justice. It dismissed the clerk who obtained an order of reinstatement from the general public services. Sector, you know, they have to go to a bargaining council, right? The department filed a review with the labor court 37 weeks later, which then lapsed. And like the UNISA department went to court urgently when the clerk through the sheriff sought to attach its asset, it was useless. The judge Satane said both applications were powered by the prevalence of ineptitude, believed that there was hope in the hopeless, urgent application. But now, here's the interesting thing, he blamed their legal representatives because he says once briefed, they had a duty to protect the court from the burden of entertaining and adjudicating absolutely hopeless cases at the expense of a more worthy case. So when you don't have a good case and it's struck from the role because of want of urgency, here he went further and he ordered the attorneys and advocates for UNISA saying, hey, you're not charging any fees. And if you paid fees, you must repay it to UNISA in 60 days. Worse still for these legal practitioners, he ordered the Legal Practices Council to investigate the conduct of Peach. Remember, now he's the head of UNISA legal, right? And in the Justice Department, he made a similar order regarding the fees against the advocates and directed the state attorney, which briefed the advocate to investigate the conduct of its own attorneys. And he awarded costs against both UNISA and the department on a punitive scale. Now, you know what a punitive scale is? Usually, it's attorney and own client costs which is a much higher case. They, according to the law reports, the lawyers for UNISA were Advocate Cello, Reso Lomani, instructed by POSWA Incorporated, 
and it and for the department it was Advocate Chu, instructed by the state attorney Polakwane. These are quite dramatic. I mean, I, I'm sure you're aware of the other case that um, of overreaching by um, a uh, um, a uh, advocate of the High Court here in Pretoria. And now there was a, they, there was a judgment against him last week. Unfortunately, he bears a Muslim name. And um, mm. there, there was a, a case that he had overcharged uh, by yes. um, 37 million. Sure. Uh, I mean, he had charged 67,000 per day for 535 days. It was just shocking that the judges said no. And then he said, Oh, but you can't strike me from the role because I'd resigned. And the judges said, no, 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 no. Your resignation doesn't protect you from the unethical, if not fraudulent behavior that you exhibited during the matter, prior to the matter, and when the matter, the post, post the hearing of the matter. So again, you can see that um, there's a possibility there. It hasn't yet come, but um, you know you could find a similar cost order. Uh, uh, Shabbat, this cost order is serious mm. because you have to pay from your own pocket, and well. it's cost. Legally, we refer to it as cost day bonus proprius. Only in the most extreme cases are cost awarded day boni proprius. Now, you know, this is a sanction by the court that says, listen, man, you behaved in such an awful manner that we just cannot afford to let the client pay. You must pay, not the state. And sometimes, you know, you, you find that uh, judges use this um, to send a message out there uh, and it says, listen, we're not accepting this. This, this, is, this is what you, this is the sanction for you behaving badly. So what is the principle here, right, Shafat? Is that the state employs huge resources, right? And obviously it has a, a, a huge budget. It, it has the state attorney, you know, it can afford the best counsel. It can afford to take the matter to court. But there's one fundamental principle that people mustn't forget. And that is the state must not behave as if it is at war with its citizens. You know, it cannot just take any case willy-nilly to court. This brings us <laughs> to a case last week where the lawyers for human rights had gotten all order in 2019 for certain parts of the Immigration Act uh, to be reworded. And this was to protect people from um, not being brought to court as others would within 48 hours, even if they were declared illegal. So the counsel for the minister argued, oh, but the minister hadn't done anything wrong. And this earned the, the anger of judge of the Chief Justice Zondo. And he said, I'm giving you an ultimatum. The Minister of Home Affairs, Dr. Mozzoledi, and um, the, Dep the Director General, Mr. Makode, must come and tell us why 
they mustn't pay the cost out of their own pockets. I mean, can you imagine this now? The judges is going directly, not just for the legal team, but for the parties involved, not in their representative capacities as the minister and the DG, in their personal capacities. Mm. Quite serious, right? Mm. You know, so interesting, Ashraf. You know, in the case of, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, unfortunately, you said the gentleman or the advocate had a Muslim name. And uh, yeah, will he see jail time, uh, Ashraf? Yeah, for fraud, they will be, if they have to prove fraud, you know, um, or corruption. So, you know, the um, there isn't a charge directly for corruption, right? But they can get you under this... Um, uh, it's not POCA, not Proceeds of Crime Act. Um, it escapes me now, but they're using that very, very effectively. Uh, it'll come to me in a moment. Which piece of legislation they're using, where you act in concert, um, you know, uh, to, to, to gain, uh, um, you know, for criminal activity. Uh, they, they used it in, in, in various cases as well. Uh, just the official title escapes me at this point. But uh, it is like something not, um, it's like organized crime, you know, where, you, where you, oh, you're, oh, you're organizing yourself to commit a crime. And it's quite possible that that might be the basis on which they will uh, proceed to, to charge uh, that advocate. And uh, quite obviously, uh, he maybe he didn't make a unilateral decision. There were some uh, uh, think tanks around him uh, perhaps whispering and motivating him, Ashraf? I don't know. I, you know, I knew him personally a few years ago. Um, yeah. Personally, I, 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 I knew him very, very well indeed too. That's why I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm so interested in, uh, you know, this and that about the whole thing. But uh, go ahead, Ashraf. No, I'm, I'm saying that, uh, you know, back, back to uh, what the courts say about, you know, ordering costs. So basically, it says, look, it's really exceptional circumstances, right? Because you can make a, an error of law interpretation, but there's a limit. It says, and the limit is when one when you encounter a degree of indifference or incompetence evidenced by the facts. When you trying to do your work and you err is one thing, not even caring about doing so correctly is another. And the public should not have to compensate um, for, because it's all coming out of the taxpayer's money, right? Um, and it shouldn't be that, you know, you can get away with indifference. Um, but this is an old thing. You know, it goes back to 1902 when Innes Chief Justice, um, he said that, look, you know, I have to mulch, the word is mulch that official in costs where his action or attitude, though mistaken, was bona fide, but it's not when it's not bona fide, then you'll get it, you see. And even our highest courts now, I give you an example of the Constitutional Court just last week saying, well, we're going to hold the minister and the DG personally liable. In that case, legislation had to be passed and proceeded with 
in the uh, in parliament for almost two years and it wasn't done and then they came three years later and they said oh we want an extension and so you, you can see where the the thread was Shafat with the labor court judgments that we just spoke about uh, where you now bring your application one year later and you expect to pull wool over the uh, over the judge's uh, eyes mm-hmm. wasn't tolerated at all I tell you, Ashraf, a fascinating uh, conversation with you as usual uh, this evening. You know, Allah bless you, Allah keep you, and uh, may you, you know, continue to inspire the ummah and uh, conscientize them on what's happening in the world of the legal eagle. Perhaps your parting words uh, this evening? Alhamdulillah, you know, we fast approaching the first uh, of Zilhaj, very important days uh, coming up in the next 10 days, days for lots of dua. Um, obviously, you know, we always say, keep up the Surah Yasins. Uh, if you can, remember us in the duas. Make a dua for the Ummah. Make a dua for human humankind. Make a dua for even the earth. Because it's all we have, Shafat. Can you imagine this? So many billions of us in this vast universe, all on this little planet. Eh? And we have nowhere else to go. So... We have to live in peace and harmony with each other and help where we can. But as always, we know that dua is a great vehicle of change. can be used at any time. Um, you know, they are the uh, supererogatory prayers. There's the chas, there's our being. We must make use of it in the next 10 days. Um, there's no excuse because it's a nice long holiday that we're having. So, inshallah, people remember that and remember us in the duas. Inshallah, Ashraf, are brilliant indeed, and you always, you know, give us insights. I mean, you talk about this earth, it's a dot, you know, this whole galaxy, it's a dot in a dot, and we are, uh, in that dot, we are a small fragment in that dot, but we, that's all we have to prove ourselves to our maker, our creator, our sustainer. This is in this dot here alone, the dot in the dot, that we write our examinations, whether we're going to pass or fail for the Akhirah, but I hope and pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us immense success both in the dunya and akhirah. As uh, usual, Ashraf, you know, you too. I will read the Yasin and one for you also, my beloved brother. Amen. You have a beautiful uh, evening ahead. I will talk to you soon. And uh, inshallah, Allah keep you now and forever. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan. And then after that, it will be Wasail al-Alam as-Sadiqah. Truthful news.